Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to the ILN show, uh, a free space to discuss the different developments in Muslim-majority countries and beyond um, in the hope of promoting a Muslim case for freedom. Um, this is our second episode, and we're going to be discussing different views um, on Hagia Sophia, Istanbul's magnificent building, which spent almost a millennium as a church, um, almost 500 years as a mosque, and the last 86 years as a museum. Um, on Friday, uh, July 24th, um, it held prayers for the very first time and is now back to being a mosque. Um, as everybody knows, this con conversion resulted in different reactions across the world, um, and we are happy to discuss this with Mr. Mustafa Akul, who is the Islamic Liberty Network Global Fellow, um, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, um, an opinion writer for the New York Times Opinion, and the author of the Islamic Jesus and Islamic Islam Without Extremes. Mr. Akul, we're very happy to have you with us. Thank you so much, Tasneem. Uh, very happy to have with you and uh, with our viewers. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. I forgot to introduce myself. <laughs> My name is Desneem Idris, and I'm the editorial associate of Islamic Liberty Network. So um, the debate about Hagia Sophia uh, might have gone down a little, but this might be the right time to, you know, have a deep discussion about what happened, especially after listening, you know, to all the views um, about it. Um, what was your initial reaction uh, when you heard about the decision? I should first say that. Uh, this is not just about Hagia Sophia. It's a, it opens up broader discussions about Islam, Christianity, history, you know, imperialism, uh, conquest, uh, equality, and all, all those ideas that are, we are struggling in the Muslim world. We're talking about in this world. Uh, so that's significant because of that. And plus, Hagia Sophia is not any building. It is the most significant church in the history of Eastern Christianity. Uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, and uh, so that's why it's significant, and also for, of course, Muslims, it's highly significant. It was the most significant mosque of the Ottoman Empire, um, and I've been I've been re writing about this for twenty years <laughs> because it's it's not something new. So that's I, I knew the history, and yeah. uh, I knew that Turkey would come to this point at some stage because we were heading towards a post-Kemalist Turkey, as I could tell in the early 2000s. And I saw this as a good thing, I supported it. What is Kemalism? Kemalism is the founding ideology of Turkey. Some people compare it to Habib Bourguiba you know, in Tunisia to some extent. Yeah. Uh, these kind of more secular, top-down autocratic rulers who wanted to modernize their societies, but not in a liberal way, but in an autocratic way. And mm -hmm. uh, Mustafa Kemal, as a Tur Turkey's founder, he did some great things that I'm respectful as a Turkish citizen. I mean, he won the War of Liberation. He brought some good reforms for women and so on. But he was an also autocratic modernizer. And his secularism, his secularism, which he brought from France, in Turkey we call it laik. And I think the same thing in Tunisia. Same yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, unfortunately, we never had a tradition of liberal secularism like in the US. We always got the French version. We even made it more, you know, authoritarian. In Same here. <laughs> exactly, and so he uh, he closed down religious institutions, Islamic madrasas, Sufi orders. These are things I have been always critical about, and uh, ultimately it went to ban the hijab, you know, for for many decades. And I, I'm a very strong critic of the, the ban on hijab in Turkey, in France, uh, elsewhere. It's an intrusion to religious freedom. So I knew that a post-Kemalist Turkey was coming, and I was supporting that. But I hope that 
uh, a post-Kemalist Turkey would be a place where Islam and liberal democracy come together uh, and have, we have a synthesis. Uh, and in the early years, Erdogan's party, the AKP, the Justice and Development Party, was promising that and walking towards that goal. And it was symbolized by the European Union and so on and so forth. So I knew Hagia Sophia would come at some point. And I've written articles in the Turkish language and English language in 2006, 2010, 2014, uh, saying that one day if we change the status of Hagia Sophia, it will be an important thing. And let's imagine whether we can open it for both Muslims and Christians. Because the, the, the suffering of Christians in Turkey is also a sad story. I mean, in the past century, Turkey has wiped out much of its Christian population, first the Armenians and Greeks, uh, because of nationalism, not because of Islam. And yeah. uh, many Christian uh, places, foundations have been confiscated. So I would say, if you reopen Hagia Sophia and say, well, Muslims can pray on Friday and Christians pray on Sunday, it would be the testimony to the pluralism. So I've written about this. I knew the structure of the building and everything. I'm from Istanbul. I know it. Um, so when President Erdogan announced the decision that therefore, I mean, he didn't initially announce, but his, uh, his advisors signaled yeah. it on social media. And we were, yeah, and the court yeah. decision came. And I said, well, uh, I respect the fact that Muslims will pray in it. As a Muslim myself, I would like to pray in it, you know, when I go to Istanbul. Yeah. Yeah, I have no problem with that. But let's not forget the Christians. And, and the Armenian patriarch uh, in Istanbul, yeah. he tweeted and he said, we are not against Muslims praying in the building, but at least then give us a space that, you know, we can also pray there as well. Mm -hmm. So the reopening of Hagia Sophia as a mosque disregarded that. Uh, and of course, for many Muslims, this can be a weird idea, like to share everything. But we have examples of that. Uh, the in great, Damascus. In Damascus, the great yeah. Umayyad mosque, uh, which unfortunately has been harmed in the disastrous uh, violence in yeah. Syria, uh, uh, was shared by Muslims and Christians yeah. for quite a while. It was a church, and Muslims then paid for it and bought it, so they didn't forcefully convert it. Yeah, we're, so, we're actually coming to that, um, you know, when, when it comes to share this idea of sharing, because in one of your old articles, you said that you're not a great fan of converting places of worships into museums. And you, as you said, you called for reopening Hagia Sophia long ago for both Christians and, and Muslims. And mm -hmm. um, this is exactly what Muslims in Cordoba called for. Um, yeah. In the early yeah. 2000s, you know, the increasing Muslim community there submitted a request that, that, that would allow uh, uh, Muslims to pray on Friday there. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, it was refused by the Spanish authorities and the Vatican as well, yeah. barely causing a ripple in international media. Yeah. So, um, you know, let alone the outrage, uh, uh, you know, that, that uh, Erdogan's decision triggered. So regardless of whether we agree with this decision or not, doesn't this show the double standards of Western critics? It does, but I should say, I've always referred to the most of Cordoba when I've written in, in Hagia Sophia, in all my articles. I said, of course, this is not just a problem for, for us. I mean, there is the example of mosque of Cordoba, which has been converted and still is a cathedral. Uh, and I said, if we reopen Hagia Sophia as a shared space, it will be an example. So we can say we, we, we should do the same thing in Spain. So we would be adding something positive to world history. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I certainly am offended, you know, that no, no prayer is allowed in the great Mosque of Cordoba. The only thing, and, and I, I'm critical. There, I should just say that the Spanish, the Catholic Church wanted to take over the building, but the Spanish authorities didn't allow that. There was a discussion about that. But I totally think they should allow symbolically at least, you know, 
Muslim yeah. prayer there. The only thing there is, the only difference is uh, when in, in the great mosque, Cathedral of Cordoba, you go in there and you see all the Islamic heritage there. The calligraphy is there, the mihrab is there. I've been there, you might have been there. Um, when we convert a church, we have a problem with images. So yeah. uh, we have to cover them. And so it actually hides the Christian building. And this has happened in other small churches in Turkey in the past 10 years. Okay. People are not aware of them. I mean, there, there is something called the legal Hagia Sophia and Trap Zone. Uh, Turkey converted back. It was a museum because in the Republican era, these, conf these contested places have been made a museum like the Kora Church in Istanbul. So the more Ottoman-minded new government, you know, reconverted them. And again, it's fine. You can say no if no Christian worships there. Uh, it's a Muslim-majority country, so Muslims can pray there. It's fine. But, but when we convert, we have a problem with images, uh, unlike that the fact that Christians have necessarily yeah. a problem with calligraphy. So... Uh, the Christian images were covered with uh, curtains. It, it happened already. In Agasofia, I know it would happen. It happened. So yes. I, I'm saying that this is not the biggest problem in the world. It's not a violent conversion and so on and so forth. But I look at it, Christians. I look at Christians in Turkey. I look at Christians in Greece. I look at Christians in Eastern Christians. They are offended. And yeah. do we need to do that? I mean, is this our value to do that? What do we gain by doing that? Yeah. Which takes us back to questions about conquest, yeah. questions about the legitimacy of you know military expansion in the first place in Islam, uh -huh. which is I think the dividing line between uh, the different Muslim opinions on these yeah. issues. Speaking of re the reaction of Christians, um, the decision was met by a lot of sadness and anger around the Christian world. Pope Francis himself said that he was pained by the move. Yeah. However, um, I don't know if you're aware of that, but there were some exceptions. Yes, um, like I told Father, them yeah. yeah, Father Manuel Musalam, who is a Palestinian Catholic priest and a member of the Christian um, Islamic community for the support of Jerusalem and the Holy Sites, uh, he said in a video broadcast um, on his video on his Facebook that President Erdogan, and I quote, raised the fate of and dignity of Hagia Sophia from a museum that was trampled by the feet of nations to a mosque which was the, which the name of God is glorified in. He literally said so. Um, what do you think about this and why isn't this re the reaction of, of all Christians? I respect uh, his views and I, if all Christians thought like that, then you know, I would say nothing. You know, I would say that's wonderful. And yeah. I mean, there's some politics saying, about yeah. these views, honestly. I mean, if you are you know, generally sympathizing with the politics of Turkey these days and so on and so forth, maybe you might be drawn into this. I don't want to. But besides politics, there is a respectful view, and I, and I understand, to say that, well, when it was a museum, everybody was walking in without any religious respect. Now yeah. it's a place of worship. We are gl glad that the name of God is honored. From actually, a religious point of view. Yeah. Actually, from an Islamic point of view, therefore, you could say if it was converted into a church from a museum, that would be great, too. Absolutely, yeah. Because there would be a place yeah. of worship, and places of worship are... I mean, in my articles about Hagia Sophia, 10 years ago or something, I would say converting it to any shrine is actually a good thing. Yes. Because it's a place of worship. Uh, but converting it to both traditions would be the best thing. So yes. that has been my group. On the other hand, uh, because converting it into a mosque forces the covering of Christian images, there is inevitably a insult or you know scar that many Christians may have, and they did. 
ultimately, Christian views are diverse, Muslims or Europeans are diverse, and I respect his views. And I, I would be happy if a lot of Christians actually thought like that. But I know also a lot of Eastern Christians who didn't think like that. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, it's still not late. I mean, Hagia Sophia is now a, a mosque, but in the future, if Turkey is in a different mood and psychology, uh, there can be an exception on uh, Sundays and the upper gallery, which you have a beautiful uh, picture of, not picture, but uh, icon, uh, image, let's say, it's yeah. not icon, uh, it's mosaic of Christ and Mary. Uh, you know, you can say for two hours it's allocated for Christians and you can, you know, from website people can sign in and do it and that would be the most amazing thing. Yeah. But that's not Turkey's mood and uh, Turkey's mood is uh, assertive religious nationalism. And as, a, as, a, as I'm a Muslim, I'm Ottoman, you know, uh, but I don't think, I don't see any value in using these identities in a way that will be against somebody. Yeah. Uh, so and Hagia Sophia symbolizes that sort of conquest. The, the word conquest has been used so much in Turkey, if you follow yeah. the conquest of Istanbul. And I think that's not the right message we need. So speaking of conquest and history, um, you know, a third opinion emerged, um, which says, which, you know, gathers some Muslims and Christians as well. They both think that um, it was fate in history that this great church moved with its people to Islam. So it's it's just like, you know, what happens uh, in Spain and other parts of the world where mosques got converted into churches. So it's just how things are. And we should just, you know, you know, adjust to it and accept that and let history, you know, do its thing. And, and then that's it. No, no, we're not, we don't have to impose any things on, or, or, on this because this is, the, you know, pluralism itself. So is this your definition of pluralism to let history do, you know, do it th its thing? Here is my view. Uh, it is a fact that Islam spread with military conquests. The rule of Islam spread with military conquests. I mean, in some places it went with merchants and traders yeah. like Southeast Asia, and that's actually important in Africa in some places too. Uh, but after Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, the Rashidun Caliphate and then Umayyads and other uh, rulers and ultimately the Ottomans conquered places and from Spain to you know India uh, and they brought the rule of Islam which was at that time very normal <laughs> I mean Christians had empires I mean the Byzantine Empire the yeah. Holy Roman Empire I mean uh, the Christians fought Muslims Reconquista and everything they went all the way to Spain, I mean, Latin America, the conquest of Latin America, which was a bloody affair. So, mm -hmm. uh, so it was a world like that. And Muslims for that time did something quite magnanimous, which is to allow Christians and Jews and later Hindus and Buddhists to remain in their religious traditions. Uh, they didn't uh, force them to become Muslims. Forced conversion is a very rare thing in Islamic history. Because the Quran says la din and no compulsion yeah. in religion and became a basis of Islamic law. Muslims minimized the meaning of la din over time, but at least you know they didn't force people to convert, uh, which was a great thing. But uh, and and conversion of churches in this history is a complicated story because there is no basis for converting a church in the Quran or in the prophetic practice in this one. Uh, jurists discuss this, and we know when Caliph Umar took Jerusalem five years after the Prophet's passing. I was going to come uh, to he that. Didn't, uh, yeah, he didn't convert the churches there. 
Then later jurors said, well, if you violently conquer a place, it's your right of the sword. Mm -hmm. Now, it's like a trophy of the, you know. Yeah, it is. Now, what I'm saying is, this right of the sword, which Turkish conservatives still lovingly quote all the time, was not Islamic. It was medieval politics. Everybody was doing it at the time. It was the universal norm at the time, if you will. Christians were doing the same thing. Others were doing the same thing. Yeah. But it was not coming from the sources of our religion. And it is not the eternal value that we should protect in Islam. That's why we should see, well, it was medieval era, the conquest era. It happened. I'm glad that, you know, Istanbul is my city and, you know, I was born there as a Muslim. I'm not saying yeah. it should not be true. But today, there is no value in evoking medieval politics as a value of Islam. Uh, every year, Turkey's conservatives uh, celebrate the conquest of Istanbul, May 27, yeah. uh, if I'm not wrong. Uh, the con I've, I've, I've said many times, like, why don't we celebrate the constitution of the Ottoman Empire or something? You know, why are, why are we celebrating conquest, which is coming and taking by force? And, you know, conquests are not nice things. It was good for you, but for the conquered people, a lot of people were killed and uh, slaughtered and enslaved and so on and so forth. So there's a bad memory there. Uh, but, yeah. but I think today, in the modern world today, many Muslims are feeling disempowered by Western colonialism and Western hegemony and other hegemonies. Uh, they probably need to glorify that ancient past. Uh, but I'm saying this is just a vicious cycle. The more we speak of conquest, the more we will trigger anti-Islamic uh, feelings and reactions out there in the world. Let's just uphold principles that we need everywhere. That is not conquest, but pluralism, coexistence, tolerance, respect, and so on. Absolutely. So um, I, w I wanted to go back to the issue of converting, you know, uh, mosques into museums in different parts of the world. Uh, in Palestine, for example, many mosques and churches, uh, churches were forcefully changed into museums, uh, Jewish synagogues, wedding halls, nightclubs, and even cattle sheds and animal pens. Um, in the city of Safed alone, um, the Yonsi Souk Mosque was converted into a museum and the Shara Mosque into a synagogue. In India, and you spoke about it, the Ayodhya Mosque has recently been converted um, into a Hindu temple by Hindu supremacists and inaugurated by Mahdi himself. Why didn't this make any international headlines like the debate over Hagia Sophia? Doesn't this reassure you know, the ever-existing double standards when it comes to anything related to Islam and, and Muslims? I, I really think that some people are against converting Hagia Sophia into a mosque. They, they prefer it to be a shared place of worship between you know uh, Christians and and Muslims, but they're really irritated by the fact that every time there is something related to Islam and Muslims, you know, it makes international headlines. Well, other horrible stories are taking place, and you know we don't hear about them. Uh, for, for, thank you. That's a very valid point of view, and I, I should say whenever I wrote about Akhen Sophia, I pointed to, to mosques who were converted or desecrated in Israel. Uh, I tweeted about it recently, uh, mm -hmm. and and also in the Balkans, people forget that Ottoman mosques in the Balkans, at the hands of Serbian, Greek, or Bulgarian nationalists, have been converted. Some of them have been destroyed as late as in the 1990s. Uh, during the 1990s, uh, Serbian fascists launched a genocide campaign against Bosniaks, yeah. uh, the Muslims of Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, and 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 parts of Serbia, and uh, their mosques have been destroyed, and so on and so forth. So. Uh, there is an ugly reality against Islam, uh, which has 
gone for for long, and we have all the right to point that out. Uh, and uh, the IOTA uh, in, in IOTA, which is a uh, town in, in India, yep. the Babri Mosque have been violently attacked by Hindu nationalists in the early nineties, and recently opened up as a Hindu temple by the Prime Minister of India, Modi, yeah. who's another populist, you know, bumping up religious nationalism. Uh, now, two things on this. Uh, is there a double standard? There are always double standards uh, when, when you look into the world about Islam in the West, which is we should always criticize and point out. But I think uh, there is also a difference because Hagia Sophia is incredibly important. It's not just any places. There are many uh, churches in Turkey that also was converted into a mosque and recently from a uh, museum back into a mosque under AKP uh, era. It was not international news. I mean, you didn't hear about the little Hagia Sophia in Trabzon. I mean, if you follow Greek news or something like that, you would see those. So I think the reason why Hagia Sophia attracted so much attention is because it is such a it's the most important Christian building in the whole Eastern world. So I mean, there were it's not a minor issue. It's a, it's a bigger issue. And Christ, Christians, the patriarch spoke, the pope spoke, and everybody important. It's smaller. I mean, so there's just a mere size and importance of the place, I think, here. Uh, second, by looking at all these desecrations of mosques, what do we Muslims uh, decide to do? <laughs> That's yeah. What's the lesson we are inferring? For some Muslims, the lesson is, which I've heard a lot, I mean, uh, some people reacted or criticized my article, saying that they did it to us, so of course we will do it to them. Yeah. And my under, my response is well they did it to us and we thought it was wrong so let's not repeat the pattern right let's not do something that may trigger more actually maybe hostility to islam which is very interesting which is a logic which is an argument defended by none other than president Erdogan two years ago uh, people don't know turkish politics that well but uh, the reopening of Hagia Sophia was a constant theme in Turkey by most conservatives, different groups. Two years ago, President Erdogan was on, on a TV show. He was asked about this. At the time, he was opposed to the idea. And he said, the people who want to reopen Hagia Sophia don't know the world. We have so many mosques around the world. What if we provoke any hostility against those mosques? These people are ignorant. He said, I lo didn't lose my direction and so on and so forth. I agreed with him. I mean... Then in two years, President Erdogan changed his mind. That I think it has something to do with Turkish politics, you know, and, and political psychology in the country and everything. He is a, he's a politician, you know, he can take different positions here and there. Mm -hmm. But I'm not a politician. I'm not interested in the votes of this party or that party. I'm interested in uh, articulating, defending some principles. So therefore, uh, to all those people who say they did it to us, so we will do it to, to them. I, my argument is let's not do it to them and let's criticize them more forcefully by presenting a moral example. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, aside from the political you know, debate inside Turkey, there's also another dimension to this, which is the American-Turkish relationship. Um, it is very noticeable that the American Congress only asked Erdogan to review the decision without any further sanctions or anything of the sort. Um, about 30 years ago, um, the American-Turkish relations were, were totally different and mainly defined by following America's lead. 
Now, as you said, only two years ago, Erdogan was opposed to, 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 to converting Hagia Sophia into a mosque. Isn't this new decision just a means to show that Turkey has become an independent sovereign country with its own independent foreign policy? And isn't this reason, the reason why Erdogan is one of the most popular Muslim leaders and simply because he is often you know, satisfying Muslims' pride and, and need to feel somehow sovereign and not only part of the Western agendas, you know? First of all, I should say that I've heard some people in the U.S. Uh, speaking of sanctions against Turkey, I forcefully spoke against that. Uh, I was actually on a TV discussion in, uh, in the U.S. Uh, and I said, uh, no, I mean, that's wrong. It is ultimately Turkey's sovereignty. That's true. Yeah. Turkey is a sovereign country. It can make decisions about the buildings, you know, in its territory, right? So yeah. this is not a legal matter. So nobody has a right to put any sanctions. Uh, how are Turkish-American relations? I'll just put one thing. Turkish-American relations aren't great. And I think both sides have mistakes on that. There's only one thing which is very good. President Trump and Erdogan, they are very in good terms with each other. They, they are. are very good, which is an interesting thing you know, to note here in this complicated picture. Anyway, let's leave aside the politics of this. Is Turkey becoming a sovereign country and making its own decisions? Yes, but 30 years ago too. I mean, people think that before Erdogan, Turkey was always a subservient. Uh, Turkey uh, did the military operation in Cyprus in 1974 by defying America, by, by defying America's threat to put uh, sanctions on Turkey. Uh, and the leader was then Bülent Ecevit, who was a who, he was allied with Ecevit bin Arbakan, actually, who's coming from Erdogan's political tradition. But Ecevit, he was a secular Turkey with secular generals. It's not that Turkey was always uh, lackeys of the West and so on and so forth. And as critical as I am of the Kemalists for their illiberalism, like authoritarian laicite, I mean, Kemalists were Turkish nationalists. They at times, you know, defied Western policy and stood up and so on. So now the question. But here are two things. When we stand up defiantly against Western colonialism, imperialism, or imposition, what are we exactly talking about here? If Western countries come and tell Turkey, you can't look for oil in your seas, I'll be against those countries. It's Turkey's right, right? If Western countries come and say, uh, you cannot, uh, we'll put you sanctions because you made a decision, which they would do in their countries, but they don't allow, I would stand with Turkey on that. Mm -hmm. But if Western countries, and not actually the government, but NGOs, media, come and say to mm -hmm. Turkey, you are unfairly jailing people. I mean, you are jailing journalists who just criticize you. That is wrong. I won't take this as an offense against Turkish sovereignty. I, I will say, well, they're right. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. because the the narratives that is coming to the west into the muslim world in the past two past two centuries sometimes include indeed colonial impositions and so on and so forth and that comes in the issues of interests oil you know natural resources and so on and yeah. so forth it was more unabashed in the past it became maybe a more nuanced later mm -hmm. that is but also we would be making a mistake if we think that anything that comes from the west and that might include NGOs, that might include media, that might include human rights organizations, is mm -hmm. an imperialist imposition. So um, some critics called what happened um, an act of cultural cleansing. Um, but isn't it more um, accurate to call converting mosques into a museum an act of cultural cleansing? You know, history tells us that it's the tradition of communist uh, regimes to do that since religion is not that important for them. 
um, when in fact relig religion represents um, a, a significant cultural aspect in both Christians and Muslim nations. I'm just going back to you know the what mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. with, with yeah, uh, it is true that converting place of worship into mosques, museums, sorry, uh, is wrong, and communists have done it, and I and I. I would stand up against that for sure in the name of religious freedom. But Hagia Sophia is a special place. Uh, by converting it into a museum, uh, the Turkish Republic, as critical as I am in, for some of the things done in those years, in the 1930s, uh, revealed its Christian past. Because under the Ottoman times, it was actually, you could see Christian iconography at different times in Ottoman Empire. It was not that strict. Historians have written about this. But, uh, Ultimately, the Ottomans covered all the Christian imagery with whitewash. So they didn't destroy those paintings. That's important, those images. But they covered it all. So it was the, all the Byzantine past was hidden. So when Turkish Republic turned out into a museum, those were opened up. So it became this amazing building where you could see uh, Christ and Mary and, you know, put there centuries ago with uh, Islamic calligraphy, mihrab, and, and the names of Allah. Yeah, it's fascinating. So by turning it, so turning it into a museum was not, in this case, an attack on a place of worship, but it was a way of uh, revealing the complicated past of these two buildings. The same thing is for Karia Museum in Istanbul, known as Kora, uh, which is called Karia. People might not be aware of that, but if anybody goes to Istanbul, I would strongly recommend it. It's a much smaller place, but it has the icons and paintings of, not icons, but paintings, images of mosaics of the most precious, I mean, Christian Byzantine uh, iconography. It, it actually reflects, which I wrote in my book, The Islamic Jesus, Eastern Gospels that are not in the New Testament, but actually sound more like the Quran. So there are some mm -hmm. paintings there about Mary uh, in the desert and so on and so forth. So, uh, so by turning these buildings, and if anybody turns Sultan Ahmed Mosque into a museum, I would fight to that to reopen it, right? Because yeah. that's a mosque, it was built as a mosque. But for places like these, uh, I think turning them into a museum was a secular solution, not in a bad sense, in a communist anti-religious sense, but in a sense that it gives plurality and, and, and it reveals the history of these buildings. Of course, the ideal would be to still worship them, but allowing two traditions. That's the ideal. Yeah, solution. that's the best thing. Nobody's interested in doing, of course. I mean, that might be ideal. No, but most churches are being visited everywhere in the in the world. They, they don't have to be museums, right? We have, you know, amazing. No, uh, they are churches. visited. No, they are visited. It's it's not a problem. I mean, people people ask me, can we not visit Hagia No, I said everybody will still visit Hagia Yeah, yeah it's still open to everyone. Uh, you won't even actually need to take a ticket, so maybe buy a ticket. Cheaper. So maybe, <laughs> yes, free totally. So that's the advantage. Uh, but uh, the Christian iconography will be covered as they are. I mean, I actually. I'm not an Istanbul. I don't know how technically it works on the ground. When they put the curtains, they said they will be put uh, covered only during the time of prayer. Mm -hmm. uh, but in Islam, time of prayer is not just five times a day. I mean, you can walk and pray at a time. Uh, right. I, I actually don't know on the ground whether they're really opening them at some point during the day and closing them. That might be a relatively more first issue. But I have no, seen no photos so far of 
uh, those curtains being lifted at some point during the day. I mean, I, mm -hmm. we have to see that what's going to happen there. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to the very beginning when Sultan Muhammad II, Muhammad al-Fatih, you know, bought the deeds for the church in 1453. Um, he didn't. From his, he didn't. No. Okay, let's Sultan challenge Sultan Mehmet, that. you mean conqueror of Istanbul? Yeah. No, that's a myth on Muslim Twitter. <laughs> okay, so so this is the th this is what I'm just trying to you know tell you what people are saying on Twitter, on Facebook, and on social media, and on TV as well. So they're saying that Sultan Muhammad II bought the deeds um, of the uh, you know of the church on his personal funds after having successfully conquered Constantinople, and then he turned the, he didn't start praying uh, you know uh, in it um, when it was still a church like you know. Uh, uh, Caliph Omar refused to do so because it was still a church. Um, he actually converted it into a mosque and then uh, he started uh, praying on it. And it was, you know, um, rightly his according to them because, you know, he, you know, he's the Sultan now, he's the, the ruler of, of, of Istanbul. Um, uh, you know, but if we compare him to Caliph Omar, he signed a, a you know a pact of peace um, with the people of Jerusalem. So you know the comparison does not stand according to them because a lot of people are mentioning Caliph Omar in this sense. So isn't this um, you know a justification enough for the conversion of, of of Hagia Sophia into a mosque at that time? Especially one more thing, uh, you know, at that time. Muslims in Spain were being, you know, tortured and, and killed. So, um, you know, even the foes of Sultan Muhammad would understand that conversion uh, because it, as if it, it was saying, we're still here, we're, we're still powerful. Uh, thank you, you for bringing that? that up. I've seen this uh, legend uh, myth that Sultan Fatih Mehmet paid for uh, Hagia Sophia only from non-Turk, non-Turkish Muslims in the past month let's say several yeah. weeks uh it is not mentioned in any historical source that he paid for it i've the seen only, documents I'm, I'm not sure about the accuracy of them but this is based on a document that is being shared on twitter i, yeah. I saw it it is in turkish so i can read what it is yeah it is a title document so it means that it belongs to fatih sultan mehmet or his foundation i mean his wakf mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't show he paid for it I mean, there's okay. no document showing that he paid for the building. Muslims paid for churches, indeed, as in Damascus, we mentioned. I mean, so yeah. they're working because they don't have the legal right to you know, convert it. So they paid for it. In the Damascus case, the great Umayyad mosque in Damascus, they, they paid for it. I think some Muslims are projecting that onto the Istanbul country. In Turkey, nobody's saying Sultan Mehmet paid for it. They're saying Sultan Mehmet took it as the right of the sword. Yeah. in Turkish. So because the idea was at the time, if you you can come to a place and say surrender, you know, if they surrendered to you, you would make a treaty with them and you would allow them to remain and their ch churches would remain as in uh, the Caliph Umar's case. But mm -hmm. if you take the place violently by force, you had the right to first convert their churches uh, or whatever their temple is. Uh, you could enslave their uh, women and children. You could, uh, you would have three days of plunder, and the Ottomans did three days of plunder in Constantinople. The soldiers came into the city, and there are some bad episodes. I mean, described there in, in Christian history books. Yeah. So it was taken by force. Uh, nobody in Turkey says, and it's not written in any source that Sultan Mehmet paid for it. At that time, that was considered as legitimate. I mean, I. 
Even to the Christians. I mean, I think even in the, uh, until, I don't know, mid Second World War, I mean, we didn't have today's notions of just war is exactly in the same sense. Yeah. Uh, Christians were worse, I mean, because they had no Sharia. So Christians could do anything they wanted. I mean, Crusaders were much more brutal. They had no limits, whereas Muslims were limited by the Sharia, which was yeah. a great thing. It, it, it allowed some rule of law. Uh, but in my article in the New York Times, I, I, I asked this question. Yes, in, in uh, Jerusalem, Christians surrendered, but surrendered after months of bloody siege, by the way. I mean, taking Jerusalem was a bloody affair, actually, but towards the end, they surrendered at some point. Uh, but we don't have in the practice of Caliph Umar, or we don't have in the practice of Prophet Muhammad, or in, the, in any verse in the Quran, about converting churches. So. I'm saying, where did this idea that you can violently take a place and then you have the right to convert come from? And I refer to the article, I, I read many articles, all the sources about this over the years. Uh, the idea comes from medieval politics. I mean, it was a norm at the time. Of course, if you're a conqueror, it's your right. I mean, you come and take it. And That's the idea, yeah. And, and um, Turkish scholar Nejmetin Güney has a good article, which I linked in my New York Times. He says, this came from administrative politics, which he means by siyasa sharia. I mean, mm -hmm. it was the politics. It was not based on Quran or Sunni, which is which brings to my argument. Well, it was the medieval era politics, and if Sultan Mehmed took it as his right of the sword. The question is, and we can understand that Christians were worse, but now the world has changed. I mean, if we legitimize the right of the sword today, will it not work against us, right? What if uh, Israel does something to Aqsa, saying uh, this is our right of the sword? I mean, will we think it's fair? We won't think it's fair. Yeah, uh, there'll be a huge reaction from the Muslim world. Uh, God forbid! I don't think it's going to ever happen. It should never happen. But, but if if you legitimize the idea that the conqueror has a right to convert places of worship and dominate the peoples, if you push this idea today, it might not be very good. <laughs> for anybody, including Muslims ourselves, in India, uh, for example. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, so um, that's been really enjoyable. I just wanted to ask you if you have anything to add about this uh, before we close, because this, the debate is still going on. And, uh, you know, whenever it's gonna, something's going to happen like this, a church turned into a mosque or, you know, vice versa, Hagia Sophia will be on top of the headlines. I would say, I mean, Hagia Sophia is a complicated issue. It's not, and I'm not saying this is a huge disaster. It was not converted directly from a church into a mosque. And it's not a violent event, it's a court decision. So it is much less benign compared to what happened in India uh, with the Babri Mosque. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, this incident is very important for the Christian world. We've seen that a lot. And it tell, it is about, it's about what uh, values we project as Muslims to the world. I mean, Turkey's top cleric, uh, Dr. Ali Arbash, who's the head of the Diyanet, yeah. he gave the first sermon with the sword. You know, yeah, everybody noticed that. Yeah, and, and he said, this is Ottoman tradition. And of course I know it's Ottoman tradition, but is that the tradition that we need to project today? Uh, some Muslims might be thinking, of course, because we have so many enemies around the world and the West has been so colonial against us, that is exactly what we need. We need the sword. We need... We need power, we need powerful leaders who will defy the world and so on and so forth. Uh, whereas I think uh, that's not going to help anything. Uh, that is going to only provoke more anti-Islamic sentiment. 
as Erdogan himself said two years ago, uh, that will uh, make it difficult to defend us when we're weak. So we Muslims should look this as principles. Uh, if we defend the right of power, if we defend the powerful, uh, it might be good for us when we are powerful, but it might not be good for us when we're not powerful, which is the case in different parts of the world uh, for Muslims today. Uh, of course, it needs. It opens a lot of questions about whether Islamic conquests in the first place were just politics, or they were religiously sanctioned and sanctified. Sorry, uh, I think that's an interesting question we should open today. Yeah. Uh, it, it's about values we present uh, and ask for in different parts of the world. That's why I thought it was an important question. Again, I'm not offended. I mean, when I go to Istanbul next time, inshallah, I'll, I'll be happy to, you know, open my prayers in Hagia Sophia. I would respect all Muslims for following us to do the same. Um, <clears throat> but let's not forget that uh, Christians built this place. And if taking it by force is something that we still glorify today, uh, yeah. we might not be projecting the best values of Islam. Sure. At least it's a place where the name of God is being glorified. Um, yeah, as one of the Christians appreciated what happened. So it's, you know, yeah, a lot of no. opinions. We're going to be always arguing about different things, different opinions, but probably we should respect that we have different opinions at the end of the day. Finally, the, what's most important is that we Muslims should be able to have different opinions and not condemn each other. Absolutely. After I wrote article, uh, you know, some parts, uh, core people in Turkey uh, put me on headlines as a, he's a traitor or something. Like that. Yeah, yeah, it happened uh, a lot too. I mean, uh, well, I just think, think differently from you. And I've been saying this opinion for 20 years. And Erdogan was saying the same thing two years ago. I mean, yeah. so we don't have to think in the same lines with the great Muslim leader, whomever that is, in any country yeah. or society, or the, even the majority. And it doesn't uh, we mean have, that we're not Muslims. Did the Christian uh, priests who had this different view on Hagia Sophia, were they condemned as traitor by other Christians? I don't know. Some people did, yeah. Some people accused did? them of being so, yeah. Okay, well, at least he probably won't be fearful of being arrested or attacked and so forth. <laughs> and if that happens, that would be a shame for Christians, of course. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think the most important thing today for Muslims at the end of the day is that on, on every issue, we have different opinions. And, and no, nobody should, uh, we, we should talk about these opinions. We can come to an agreement. We might still disagree, but we should not demonize each other. There's not one Islamic line that's absolutely true and other things are uh, absolutely unjustified. Absolutely. And, also, and also one more thing. I've seen in our world, like clerics in Egypt and so on and so forth, uh, criticizing Turkey's decision and they said, I don't want the wrong thing. I actually say something a bit similar, but I know those clerics are saying that because they're under CCTV. You know, Absolutely. Yeah, we should differentiate between. So yeah. let's just give a break. I mean, I don't want clerics in Turkey parroting Turkish official line, and I don't want clerics in Egypt parroting the or Saudi Arabia the official line. But for that, they should have freedom of speech. I see clerics in Turkey supporting the official Turkish line. I see clerics in Egypt supporting the line of general term president CT, CC. Uh, general term. Uh, sorry? Huh? <laughs> you call them general, general term president because he is so. Okay, uh, field marshal, you know. Uh, <laughs> CC, uh, who's a bloody autocrat. Uh, and, uh, or the clerics in Saudi Arabia parroting the line of the crown prince. Uh, 
Mohammed bin Salman. And uh, this is actually one a sign of the problem we have in, in Muslim majority societies today, that both politics, politics, political leaders, autocratic political leaders are quite dominant on society, including religious narratives. And uh, you can have this sort of fatwa or that sort of fatwa, depending on whomever is in power. Well, if we lost something in the from the medieval era, from classical era, it was the independence of scholars. Yes, we have in our history, my friend and colleague Ahmed Kuru wrote a great book about this, uh, Islam, Authoritarianism and Underdevelopment. And he's, he shows in the especially early centuries of Islam, scholars were independent, uh, financially independent, institutionally independent. The Sharia protected them, their foundations to be confiscated by the state and so on. So there forth. were some exceptions, and, though. Sorry? There were some exceptions. There were exceptions. Some were yeah. actually tortured or flogged for not following yeah. the leaders. But there, we have a notion of scholars who could stand up. Yeah. There are heroic examples of that from all different you know, branches of Islam. Uh, today, uh, one problem is that we Muslims cannot discuss our issues in a productive way very often because First, there's fanaticism. Every different opinion is treason and should be con condemned. Yeah. So there's that problem. Second, politics. there's the influence of politics. Political uh, leaders, regimes push on their societies and their religious institutions and newspapers and everything here to put a certain censorship mind. and everything. Censorship yeah. and everything. Uh, I think these are the big issues that we have to speak about today. I mean, I'm, Muslims will not will not you know change the world actually when we for the better or even for the worse. I mean by be converting Hagia Sophia, the glory of Islam will not come back and yes. so on and so forth. If our glory will ever come back, that means being a civilization that others admire and, and in which peace and prosperity and, and rights and justice flourishes. Absolutely. We should begin by uh, freedom. <laughs> so we can talk about these things, different ideas can prosper. That's why I think Islam and Liberty Network is doing a great uh, Thank you so job much. carrying out an important mission. Uh, I'm proud to be a part of the team. You uh, are a global and, Thanks. And, and, and thank you, Taslim, and all your colleagues for all your work and uh, giving me this opportunity. You know, yeah. It's been really a very enjoyable discussion, and we covered everything, basically. Um, thank you so much for being here with us and all the insights and looking forward to having more and more interesting discussions in the future. Inshallah. Thank you. Thank so, you so much. Salam alaikum. Salam to everybody Goodbye. who's following us. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.